Now going into 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the final chapter in this first book of Corinthians. And here we see that it deals with a contribution, it deals with opposition, it deals with recognition, and benediction. This last chapter has all of these characteristics. Paul is answering a question put forth by the Corinthian church concerning the giving of money for the work of the ministry which Paul was involved in, namely the collection of a gift for the poor who were Christians in the city of Jerusalem. And it will do us well to see how Paul says the giving, collection, and dispersing of money is to take place. And so there were gifts designated to the poor, and he's going to give us the reason and the background. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 16, it says, Now about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, which is Sunday, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So how was this process of collecting money done? There are several points that are taken from these verses. It's on the first day of the week. Uh, Verse 2, on the first day of the week, the believers, as they would come together and worship, it was their responsibility to give a sum of money, and, and it's going to be in keeping with their income, and it was on that particular day. And it would be every Sunday, 52 Sundays in a year. And so 52 times we should all, as believers, as the example is given to us here, have some, something to give monetarily for the work of the ministry. And specifically here he's talking about giving to those who are poor that don't have anything. And then secondly, everyone participated. It says, each one of you. That means those who have little, they give in proportion the same as someone who has a lot. For instance, some people say that it is 10%. We ought to give 10%. We ought to tithe. That's what a tithe means. In the Old Testament, the tithe was not a total of 10%. The tithe that the Hebrews would end up giving is 23 and a third percent whenever they gave. They were supposed to give weekly uh, 10% of anything that they had. There was also... Uh, gifts for the Levites and for the poor. And by the time they got all done during the year, it was 23 and a third percent of their income. If somebody wants to start at 10%, that is wonderful. But each person is supposed to participate in that. If somebody has $10 and they want to hold to the 10%, of course, that would be $1. If somebody had $100 and they want to hold to 10%, Of course, that would be $10. It's just up to the individual. If the individual says, well, I I don't feel I can give 10%. Well, a person is supposed to give according to their heart and their desire. If somebody wants to give more than 10%, well, they're storing up for themselves treasures in heaven. Same with the person who gives less than 10% if they give something at all. Then also the sum is supposed to be in keeping with their income. I've already explained that the... uh, tax, so to speak, or the tithe that was in the Old Testament was 23 and a third percent. I think it would be good for the government, our government, to live on no more than 23 and a third percent. Is that possible? I don't think that's ever going to be possible. 
But that would be a great constitutional amendment that would be out there, and it would help us to live within our means, and we wouldn't be spending frivolously. But that sum is supposed to be in keeping with our income. So we look at how much our income was, and if somebody makes $100, they're certainly not going to give as much as a person that makes $10,000. And so we, we understand whatever you make, do it in proportion or a percentage is the way God dictates it here. Also, this idea of giving is a spiritual gift. In Romans chapter 12, verse 8, several gifts are listed. And uh, one of those is giving. It says, if it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. And so he doesn't say just give a little bit. Have you ever gone to a restaurant? Uh, When Patty and I, if we get a chance to go to a restaurant... I like to go to a restaurant that doesn't serve art for food because uh, normally it's a, a small piece of meat that's maybe a couple inches in diameter and then there's a swirl of something going across the plate with a little green piece of parsley and something yellow that's a dot on the other side of the plate. And I, I just don't think that that's very generous with what they're giving at the restaurants. If I go to a restaurant and I pay for a meal, I want to feel like I had a meal and I'm walking away. Well, God tells us to consider giving the same way. If somebody is in need of something and you're giving, we're not supposed to pinch the pennies, so to speak. We're to give generously. And we can never outgive God on this. And we're supposed to save this up. We're supposed to do this diligently with forethought. We're to set aside the sum of our money and we're to give it on the Sunday according to this passage here. And there should be no impassioned plea, but this should be done voluntarily. And as I just previously said, it's the responsibility of the giver. If somebody comes up in any ministry, if any televangelist comes up and says, we are going to go under if we don't get X amount of dollars so soon, well, I would say, let it go under. And I've always considered that to be the case with this ministry here. Uh, Chuck Smith used to have an axiom, as God guides, God provides. And if he wants things to continue, he will provide the way. And so we should never go with an impassioned plea that a ministry is going to go under or make people feel guilty because there are starving children around the world or whatever the case might be. I think it's okay to let people know what needs are, but no impassioned pleas should be done. And it also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, where this thought is taken from. Of course, it's on the first day of every week. Each one should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up. And this is the key. So that when I come, no collections will have to be made. So in other words, when Paul comes, he will not have to stand up before everybody and say, people, we need to be giving for those who are poor and indigent in the city of Jerusalem. Come on, open up your pockets right now and let's do this. And so it's not also an investment. You're not giving money in order to get something back. You're not dealing or bargaining with God saying, God, if I give you this amount of money, then you'll bless me. And if you give me that amount of money to give, I'll know it's you. And we're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to give not thinking that we're going to receive back. Any reward that we would receive should be coming when we get to heaven. And we are supposed to be faithful in this, for Scripture says, he who is faithful in the little things will be faithful also in much. And if we can't be faithful in the giving of money, 
obviously there's a problem in our lives and with our walk with God. Now, he also says with this money, we are to entrust it, whether it's us or if it's them back then at that time, we're to entrust the funds to faithful men, and I believe men and women, it's plural here. First. Uh, Corinthians chapter 16, verse 3, it says, Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So uh, the money itself, if he needed to go with the gift to establish and protect it, then that's okay if it seemed good to the rest of the church. If not, if these men were qualified, you could give it to qualified men to... Uh, take it to Jerusalem. And he sought uh, after this gift. It says this uh, to be sent to Jerusalem. It says this in Acts chapter 24, verse 17. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. So this was brought to fruition, not only from the church in Galatia, but the church in Corinth as well. They saved up the money and Paul took it there. We see that he went along with them to deliver this gift. And, of course, I just mentioned the Galatians uh, in sixteen, chapter 16, verse 1. He says, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. So more than one church was participating in giving food, money, sustenance to those who were in Jerusalem. And then he also encouraged the other churches in the area of Macedonia and Achaia. Uh, they were pleased to make contributions for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So many churches were involved. And this happens, I think, as a regular mode of operation today where all churches will get together for a particular purpose, whether it's giving to the poor, uh, even in Lakeside. All the churches in Lakeside give to the Lakeside Help Center so that the poor uh, can be uh, given some food and clothing and they can go over there and those will be provided for them. They can't go there every single day but we make sure that we are participating in this as well because it definitely is biblical. And those in Macedonia, they gave out of their want. They didn't give out of their abundance. And 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 says, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy, and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service of the saints. And so we are encouraged to do the same thing, to be faithful, generous givers even when times are tight. And we might trust in our own ability to have income, but I can't tell you the countless stories over the years that I have heard of people just giving things away and knowing that God will provide. There are missionary stories about this all over the place where somebody will pray and bless the food and the food's not even there. And then lo and behold, a knock at the door, they open the door and there's a bag of groceries there. I know orphanages have experienced this as well. And so this builds our faith if we're able to do this and able to bless others even though it might cost us even more than what we would like. And then also, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 10 says, And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eagerness or your eager willingness to do 
it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved when you are hard-pressed, but there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Now, this is not a treatise for communism where you just bring everything into the pot, the state owns it, and they deliver it out to everyone else. Uh, It was the practice during the new uh, church in the first century to sell things so that others that did not have might have their needs replenished, whether it's food or clothing or a place to stay. But we want to make sure that it is according to willingness, that we're not under compulsion, that there's no guilt that is being delivered, that people have to feel like it is an onerous burden. Uh, we should be able to give cheerfully. So going on back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 5, After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door of effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me, which brings us to this idea of opposition. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan said, If you have no opposition in the place you are serving, you are serving in the wrong place. And, And so if you start a ministry, if you're involved in some way in church or international outreach, you better count on there being opposition and not be taken off guard. Like, I can't believe they're doing this. No, believe that they, whoever they may be, are going to oppose you. And that's going to be brought on by Satan himself. Now, why is there opposition? Obviously, the first thing is the Lord allows it. He allows us to go through these trials because we know that it produces in us perseverance and we are able to stand. We become stronger in our faith if we endure. And of course, it is brought about, as the Lord permits it, by the world, by Satan, or by other men and women initiating it. Of course, the world and the way that the allurement of the world, if you look at the world and the things that it has to offer, Jesus said, love not the world nor the things of the world. But if we get enraptured by them, those things can cause us some trials. Uh, Satan, of course, we know that he comes in and he disrupts the body of Christ. It says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So when we fight, it's not each other that we're really fighting against. It's the little devil on the side saying, Yeah, say this or do that. Go ahead. And the angel saying, No, I wouldn't do that. Oh, and you hear a heavenly voice. We want to make sure that we recognize when Satan is getting in there, it's kind of like 
a nice pond that is all settled. You look at it, it's crystal clear. You can see all the way to the bottom where the dirt is. And if you take a stick and you mess that up at the bottom and all the dirt comes into the water and just makes everything muddy. That's what Satan does. He comes into our lives. He takes a stick and he goes, <laughs> like that, oh, deal with that. And we have to deal with the enemy and what he's doing. And we can say, forget you. I'm not going to pay attention to that. I'm just going to go and do what the Lord has called me to do and you will not distract me. And of course, if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. And it says he roams around like a roaring lion seeing who he can devour. And of course, we know he's been defanged. And then thirdly, it will come by other people. Other people have other points of view and they want their will to be done. It's like the individual who Uh, doesn't believe in God or doesn't believe in the Christian God and so they create God in their own image rather than God creating us in his image. They create a God the way that they want him to be rather than the way he actually is as spelled out in scripture. And so whenever we go through ministry or through some type of task for the Lord, there are going to be people that actually oppose us. And of course, Satan can use those people, even believers, to oppose us or whatever somebody is doing inside of a church or ministry. And it may also be that we, as individuals, have sown the trouble. Uh, Remember the phrase that says, better to keep one's mouth closed and to be thought a fool than to open it and remove all doubt. Uh, if you say something that is just foolish, you, may be con- you might be causing yourself some harm. And so it's wise to keep the mouth closed on most occasions. And so we sow to our own destruction just because we lack wisdom. And who has done that? Well, virtually everybody has at one time or another. And if you find yourself being opposed, we should ask ourselves... Are people opposing us or me or you because you are doing the Lord's work? That's what you have to ask. Is what is being done, is it actually the Lord's work? Is this what the Lord wants to take place, to transpire, to come to fruition? And if it is, there will be some type of opposition that comes. And as an example, are we bent on preserving Society and not bent on preserving lives for all eternity. You can judge. Uh, Why are you doing something in ministry? Is it for the benefit of the people that the Lord wants to be saved? Or is it because you have some social agenda? You want to preserve society out there. We know that society in some way, in some faction of it, we know that society is passing away. All of this is going to be destroyed with a, a great fire uh, explosion that's going to take place. We know that from Peter, the little book of Peter. But this idea uh, we have to recognize, are we really after saving lives and ministering to people? Are we doing something because it suits us or because it's beneficial to society, so to speak, and that's our main focus? Also, we want to find ourselves, if we're being opposed, asking, are we experiencing joy in the midst of the trial? I don't know about you, but I have a hard time with joy in the midst of a trial. And one of the things that I did early on as a believer was uh, cleaned up my language. <clears throat> I, I, 
don't want to insult sailors, but I was right with them, uh, drunken sailors, by the way. And not all sailors have bad language, but a lot do. Uh, and especially drunken sailors uh, have bad language. And people who aren't sailors, people who are uh, in other branches of the military, and people who aren't even in the military, they have a problem with bad words, bad language. And so what I would do in my mind is whenever one of those satisfying words would flow through and want to exit out my mouth... I would close that gate. I remember Mike McIntosh taught us that close the lion of the tongue behind the gate of the teeth. And and that's what I started to practice. And it, it just started going away where I wasn't even thinking about those types of words. As they want to come out, I would just destroy them. And for those of you who might remember the Tasmanian devil on the Bugs Bunny uh, cartoon show, I would do that to the words that would come in. I would pulverize, mentally speaking. I wasn't going up and down with a hammer on the ground or anything like that. I I would just mentally destroy that. And so I, I would make sure I was not sowing bad language by continuing it. And also... Uh, this idea of sowing the problem. Uh, Am I experiencing joy in the midst of that? I want to make sure that I am experiencing joy, but if I was to say a bad word, I would not have any joy on the inside, and that's a trial for me, that's a test. And and then when you go through all of that, you have to ask yourself, okay, are you going to get back up? The righteous man falls seven times, and seven times he gets back up. Are you going to get back up? And you're not going to do the cussing. You're not going to fall into the same error. You're not going to act foolish in your language or in your behavior. And if you do that, that would be the next thing. Are you bearing up under it? Uh, We can collapse easily and say, I'm just a failure at this. And I, I think the Lord probably comes to us when we say, I'm such a failure, Lord. And he says, you are. But he says, I don't care. I'm redeeming you because you've asked me to, and we're going to make everything right. And so that's why we can bear up under it, because we fail so many times every day. Uh, We know that the Lord allows these trials, and we know that it comes through the world, through Satan and through man. We know that on occasion we have sown our own trial into our lives and are people opposing us because we're doing the Lord's work or because we're Uh, really not doing the Lord's work? Are we bent on preserving society rather than preserving lives? And are we experiencing joy in the midst of the trial? Uh, We want to make sure we do that. James 1, 2 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. And then are we bearing up under that? 2 Corinthians 4, 7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down and not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. In other words, we consider ourselves crucified with Christ. That's how we bear up under this. And we're supposed to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, Romans 12, 1, and we're supposed to do that daily. 
And also, are we experiencing opposition because we desire something and we're just not getting it? This is what I want, and why am I not getting it? Have you ever seen somebody complain at a restaurant that maybe their food wasn't cooked right, and, and they say, oh, take this steak back, and they take the steak back, then it comes again, and then it's not right, and then you get all upset again. Not necessarily you, but you have probably have seen that happen. Of course, James 4.1 talks about what causes fights and quarrels among you. You want something and you don't give, get it. You covet and you kill in order to have something, and you don't get what you want when you ask God because you're asking it to heap it upon yourself. And that's Bill's version of the Bible, but that's what it says in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And so we want to make sure if there's some opposition, we're not having the opposition because people are resisting us because it's our own flesh that's getting in the way. In other words, am I placing my own personal desires before the desires of others? We don't want to do that. We're to consider others better than ourselves. And if we live in such a way where every single person who comes into our purview, into our queue, so to speak, into our sight, into our vision, into the relationships that we have, are we always considering them better than ourselves and trying to fulfill the desires that they have rather than our own desires? Philippians 2.3 is, of course, the reference that I would go to on that. Now, do I really know why I am in opposition to someone else and what they want to do? We know that Paul in Acts chapter 19, verse 8, entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Now, obstinate means stubborn, pig-headed, inflexible, unmovable, and headstrong. So as he's talking to the people, some of them became obstinate. Not that Paul wasn't making the case because he was arguing persuasively, it says. It didn't matter that he had all the facts on his side. They just started saying, no, you can't make me believe the way you believe. If, if you guys are... Old enough, you remember the program Gilligan's Island. In Gilligan's Island, I remember one episode, he crossed his arms. They wanted him to do something. And I think they wanted him to dress up like a woman. And he said in that particular episode, he crossed his arms. He put his nose up, closed his eyes and said, you can't make me, you can't make me, you can't make me. And of course... He ended up succumbing to their request, and he did it. But there were people here that Paul is arguing with that just wouldn't listen to reason. They say, no, this is what I'm going to believe. I'm not changing my mind. You can't make me. And, of course, the people that are obstinate like that, what did Paul do with that? He left. He said, fine, Be obstinate. This is the truth. And if you want to listen to the truth, you can benefit from it. And if you don't want to listen to the truth, then you won't benefit from it. You can be obstinate, stubborn, pig-headed, inflexible, unmovable, and headstrong. But it's going to be to your own demise, your own downfall. And if there is tremendous opposition, it is good to move on if the work is being hindered. Move to a venue that will produce fruit. 
Don't sit there and argue. The servant of the Lord must not argue. And then you have to ask, well, when is it time to stand? Will my opposition result in good being accomplished? And, of course, this requires the wisdom of Solomon to know when to remain in a position of opposition and when to move on from that particular place. And all we have to do is ask the Lord for that. But we are to do everything in love. In verse 10 of the same chapter, it says, If Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should refuse to accept him. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. So there's a chance that Timothy would show up and the church would say, well, who are you? We know Paul, but who are you? And so he must send this letter ahead of time to let them know that Timothy's okay. He's good. He's commended by me. You need to accept him in and send him on his way with a blessing. Verse 12 says, now about our brother Apollos, I was strongly, or I strongly urge him to go with you or to you with the brothers He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. And we we know, of course, that Apollos was very effective in Corinth. He, He was a tremendous apologist for the Christian faith. Verse 13, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong. What is he saying to be strong in? Well, there's several things to be strong in. One is in doctrine, another is in grace, and another is in faith. We want to be strong in all of those and to stand our ground. In other words, there is opposition coming into the church and those who have used the scripture to guide them, who have sought counsel uh, also to guide them, they are to stand firm and be immovable. And this is the commandment that comes from the Apostle Paul. Finally, do everything in love. Verse 14 of chapter 16. If we don't have love, we're just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal that we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So love is to be our motivator. Verse 15, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you, brothers, to submit to such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. So this is where... Submission comes in again. We are to submit to those who are doing the work of the Lord. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. In other words, they gave him some money and some food. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. And so those who do well in the church, we are to recognize them. Why? For their own benefit or to flatter them? No, it's for the benefit of others that they might see a good example. Now, who should receive recognition? First Timothy chapter 5 verse 17 says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. This is referring to actually an income. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12 verse 11 It says, I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, but I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. And so they're they're supposed to be 
a recognition of those who do service to the Lord. And Paul was saying that the super apostles, you recognize them, but you don't recognize the work that the Lord has done through Paul and his ministry. And he's saying this is not right. Uh, In verse 145, verse 4, it says, One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. Uh, And an example of somebody being commended, Romans chapter 16, verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sencrea. And so this idea that we commend people, and this also comes when we're seeking after wisdom. There should be people that are our go-to people when we want to know if something is wise or unwise. I have a list of people that I go to. Uh, whether it's the board members of this church or it's my pastor, Pastor Dave, or others that I know in ministry. And I've done this on several occasions. There are those that I do not have personal face-to-face contact that I also listen to and what they, and I've read. And what they have to say uh, provides guidance. Uh, one of the, the worldly individuals, I don't mean he's worldly in the way that he acts, he's just in the world Uh, moving around is Jordan Peterson. Uh, And one of the things that he says in his book is, before you go out and try to change or save the world, why don't you clean up your room? Uh, And I I think that's great advice. If you can't take care of your own self, why go out and try to do something for someone else? Learn to take care of your own stuff, your own self first, and then go ahead and move on because you learn how to help others by helping yourself. And so that's some worldly wisdom that I I thought was very good. And, And by extension, we need to know that all wisdom is God's wisdom. But not all wisdom is in the Bible. God doesn't say, clean up your room before you go save the world. But I think it's certainly implied uh, in the text of Scripture that we are to be good individuals, good disciples, good citizens. And so he would be one person. I, I really like listening to him. And there are others who are out there, other pastors and other teachers and those who are attorneys, uh, places I like to go, uh, one would be the Hoover Institution. The Hoover Institution has men and women there that write and they uh, have YouTube videos and they're, they were just full of a lot of wisdom there, especially some history things that they do. It's all good. And so we need to recognize those people who provide for us wisdom. I just saw a clip just very recently on Ben Shapiro. Uh, And Ben Shapiro, uh, he is a Jew. He's not a Christian. But he has lots of wisdom. And he was talking about on campuses how there is this culture that if anybody who is white and a male or a female speaks up, they're not to be listened to because they're not a person of color or maybe they're not rich or they're poor. And the person who is rich cannot relate to that. And so there is this council cancel culture that says anybody who is of that has privilege and they're not to be listened to and what they're doing is focusing on hate rather than focusing on what is valid or what is true or what is wise or what is full of knowledge and we're never to acquiesce or capitulate to that and there would be those who would put their boot on our necks and say you must submit and of course I am one that will never do that and we want to recognize those who are wise as I just mentioned, Ben. Uh, But there are also uh, pastors who were very wise. And I I can remember listening 
for a long time to uh, different teachers on the radio like J. Vernon McGee and the Bible bus and uh, just all the, the teachers for hours and hours in a day. Uh, there's so much wisdom to be gained, and I always commend other individuals to go to them. If you want to know something about the cults, there's a person who, quote-unquote, wrote the Bible about the cults, and it's Dr. Walter Martin, and I would commend him to anybody who asked, and how can I get information about the cults? He would be the one that I would say to go to. And there are definitely people I would avoid that I would not listen to their wisdom, that I would shun their advice knowing that they are foolish and, and they have done foolish things and they think what they have done already is okay. Uh, people like that would be Bill Clinton. I would not listen to Bill Clinton. I would not listen to Barack Obama. I would not listen to CNN. I would not listen to MSNBC. The people that are involved in there, Rachel Maddow and, and all of those people, I think that the wisdom that they have is only worldly wisdom and is not beneficial for this life or for eternity. And all the things that they have to say will bring ruin if they are adhered to. People like Karl Marx, I would say, do not listen to anything that Karl Marx has to say or anything Mein Kampf that Hitler had to say or any people that were in that vein, I would completely reject them or Maduro down in Venezuela. I would not listen to a single thing he has to say and I would not commend him at all. Or publications like the New York Times, I would say, do not listen to a single thing in the New York Times or other publications like Time or Newsweek and any of those because they come from a worldview, a particular bent. But this idea of recognition, we need to stand up and say, this person is trustworthy. Are they flawed? Absolutely they're flawed. Are they going to make mistakes? Absolutely they're going to make mistakes. Does everyone make mistakes? Absolutely. But they recognize their mistakes. They speak out when they have done so. And they say, you know, I, I needed to correct this. And that's wisdom speaking there. So Paul then ends with a benediction here. He says in verse 19, The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. And so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Come, O Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. So that is the contribution, the money, the opposition that we might receive, the recognition of individuals, and the benediction at the end of this book. So Paul sought to make sure that the Corinth or the church in Corinth was provided for, that they had the wisdom, they had the guidance from Scripture. Of course, we know his letter became Scripture. And if they followed it, they would be blessed. But even though this was taking place in his church in Corinth and also all churches for all time, there are going to be people who are obstinate that are going to say, no, I'm not going to listen to that. But if we adhere to the words of Paul we will be blessed. So with this message, let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul, the wisdom that you gave to him, and the trouble that he experienced, we know was for our benefit here today. We ask that you would help us to glean for ourselves something specifically for this morning, but help us to devour the entire book and learn from its pages that we might not commit error and by your spirit may we resist effectively 
the ways of the world and the ways of the flesh and Satan. So, Father, we thank you for your guidance that you provide. We ask for it to be continued in Jesus' name.